Thank you for tuning in to the Lakewood Grace Podcast. We're a church in Lakewood, Washington, and whether you're listening from around the corner or from around the world, we're glad that you're here. We hope this sermon equips you to be the Christian the world needs today. If you'd like to learn more about us, head on over to lakewoodgrace.com. And now, for this week's sermon. Good morning, friends. Welcome to church today. I'm glad that you are here. I trust you came ready to hear what God has for us today. It is a word that we need. It is a word that, although this was written some time ago, and this is, this is why uh, Scripture still speaks to us today. It is infused with what God has to say with us, to us. So uh, I'm going to get right into it. We continue in our 1 Corinthians series And the title of this series is Living a Godly Life in an Ungodly World. How do we do that? And we're going to look at what was going on here uh, in the context of Corinth and what Paul had to say to them. Our scripture today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through through chapter 2, verse 5. So hear now the word of the Lord to you and to me. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. If you struggle to understand any of that, that's okay. Paul's like that. We're going to go through this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or with human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling, and a verse that touches my heart, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before Paul gets into this, you'll notice, if you were paying attention, he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So I'm going to back up one verse. This is the end of last week's verse. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, writes Paul, not with wisdom and eloquence, remember those words, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross 
of Christ be emptied of its power. And then he goes into our text today. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. See, two key words here that we're going to focus on today. Wisdom and eloquence. I want you to remember those words. Let's go back now to some context of Corinth. If you'll remember, you'll know that Corinth was a bustling metropolis. It was a port city full of every vice imaginable. There are sailors running around everywhere. And here in this city, this city where if you could make it, you could make it anywhere. Imagine New York City, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, all rolled into one city. And in this city called Corinth, there's about 100 people who form up this church that Paul started. They're from all walks of life who are trying to figure out how to be Christians because in every way they are still Corinthians. Are they Corinthians first and then Christians? Do they let their Corinthian DNA shape their Christianity? Or is their Corinthian culture being shaped by their Christianity? And so they reached out to Paul. Paul, okay, we've surrendered to Jesus. We're holy now. We get this. We're set apart in this world. We're in it, but not of it. So how do we live, Paul? And we struggle with the same question today. Is our Christianity Americanized? Or is our view of our country and how we live shaped by the gospel of Christ? How do we live godly lives in an ungodly world? And one step, I think, in answering this question is by looking at the things that we value or the things that we allow to give us value. So, in the Corinthian context, it's wisdom and eloquence. You remember those words? Wisdom and eloquence. You see, wisdom and eloquence, they are Corinthian ideals. So, a wise person, an eloquent person, a highly educated, well-spoken person had influence and followers. And a highly educated, eloquent person who could make friends and influence people, if that was you, you possessed power. And with power came people who would seek out your protection, who would seek out your help. They became kind of your clients, if you will. So in this Corinthian society where two-thirds of the people were indentured servants, two-thirds of the people were slaves, two-thirds of the people were invisibles, they were nobody, and you had the rest of the third of the population that controlled all of the resources, you needed to have friends in high places. And this kind of relationship, the friends in high places and people who depended on them, they had this relationship that was kind of foundational uh, to Greco-Roman society and wisdom and eloquence in this relationship are currency here. Wisdom and eloquence defined who you were, your spot in life. So that's why Paul made it clear that he preached the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. He didn't come using Corinthian currency of wisdom and eloquence, lest the Corinthians focus more on the cultural currency of wisdom and eloquence than the power of the cross. What makes the biggest impact is Paul's question. Is it what you value or is it the power of the cross? And so Paul's like, hey, Corinthian Christians, you're focusing on the wrong things. Don't miss the power of the cross for lesser things like wisdom and eloquence. This speaks to us today, right? The gospel, you see, is being preached that Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sins and you're more concerned with who you're associating yourself with, whether it's you brag about following Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ alone. And Paul's going, you guys, there's an entire port city 
in need of redemption, church, then you're split over who's the wisest. That's chump change in a spiritually bankrupt city. That's why Paul didn't come with his wisest and most eloquent presentation of the gospel. And listen, he could have. In the book of Acts, Paul talks about how he is Jew among Jews. He talks about being from Tarsus, a major educational place. He talks about being under Gamaliel. He was the man. He had all the credentials. He was a Pharisee. He could have used that as the bedrock of his preaching, but he gave it all up because he didn't want people to be focused on those things. Paul was about Christ crucified, the power of the cross. And this message that makes sense to the church, Paul says it's just foolishness to those who are outside of Jesus. And I'll tell you where I see this the most. I see this the most at memorial services. I see it whether we do one at the little church on the prairie. I see it when I do uh, memorial services at Mountain View. You see, a couple years ago, I did a funeral service over there at Mountain View. And then after the funeral service, after the memorial service, one of the funeral directors came up to me and she said, would you be willing to be on our call list for local clergy? And I said, well, that sounds like fun. What, what does that mean? And she said, if, if we have somebody, a family who comes in here and they would like a pastor to lead the service, I'll put you on the list and I'll call you. And I said, I will do that on one condition. You have to know that I'm a Jesus guy. You have to know that when you call me, I'm not just going to give some generic, worldly send-off. I'm a Jesus guy. Uh, I'm going to proclaim the gospel. That's what you get. And she said, okay. So, for a while, for like one or two years, I was doing a memorial at Mountain View sometimes once a month, sometimes twice a month. And I'm proclaiming the gospel. And I can see most of the people doing this. Looking at their watches. I see when I get to the Jesus part about the cross, about the empty tomb, about the hope that that gives us. That this is not the end. That you can have this kind of hope too. And I, and I know somebody's listening because I'm proclaiming this to you. And I see blank stares. And I can tell the people, they're just not connecting with it. It's foolishness to them. And so for a while of me going, Jesus, 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 I don't get a lot of those calls anymore. But every now and then I'll get a call. And at every memorial service, there's somebody, there's, there's somebody, there's somebody uh, in the crowd, or maybe it's most of the crowd, they get really uncomfortable when I get to the gospel part. Because to them it's foolishness. To imply that Jesus died for sinners, to imply that I'm a sinner, that you're a sinner, it's foolishness. What do you mean it's not good enough to be a good person? You're telling me that my goodness alone will not make me stand before the Father, but I need to be covered with Christ's righteousness? That's foolishness. You're saying that forgiveness, hope, and eternal salvation, they don't come through what I believe. They come through Jesus Christ alone? Paul calls this a stumbling block and foolishness to people who only know this worldly economy. Stumbling block. In the Greek, it's scandalon. It's scandalous. It's an offense. It's the same word. And Paul gives us a couple of examples. Jews and Greeks. He said the Jews demand signs. 
You see, for these guys, their currency was their religiosity. They thought that their heritage alone was enough. These folks thought they could get by with religion alone. You see, let me see if anybody, does this sound American to you or not? Listen, if they kept the law, if they checked all the boxes, if they said all the right things, if they made all the right sacrifices, if they tithed generously, if they looked the part, if they showed up to church, if all they had to do was show up to some temple or some sanctuary somewhere, and it doesn't matter where because all roads lead to God, right? We love that wisdom. If they just played the part, if they sang, they listened to sermons, they tithed, their efforts and their piety are enough alone to earn their place into heaven. And their currency was their piety. Christ crucified? Don't you see what I'm doing here? Don't you see me jumping through these religious hoops? Don't you see that I'm believing in something? Isn't that enough? Christ? So, for a little while, I sat on this commission. It was called Commission on Preparation for Ministry. And it's something that we have in our presbytery. If Every presbytery has one. If, if you feel a call into the ministry. How that begins in our context is you would go to the session at your church. That's the governing board of the local church. And you say, I, I, I think the Lord is calling me into ministry. And there ought to be somebody who sits on that session who goes, are you sure? <laughs> Let's flesh this out. And so the process starts there. It starts with the church affirming this call. And then it goes over to the presbytery. And from there, it's a long process where the presbytery and the local church walk you through this. And, and for some of us, it takes years, right? But, but it starts with the local church. And I remember that this person came through. She was an inquirer. This is like step two after talking with the church. Now you go before this board. Step two, right? And so my question, who is Jesus? That's all I ask. Who is Jesus to you? You feel a call into the ministry? Who's Jesus? I didn't ask her if she believed in Jesus. I said, who is Jesus? And she shuffled in her chair. And she goes, I believe that Jesus is the God for Christians. This is where you all gasp. He's the God for Christians. Which is basically Unitarian Universalist theology. Christ alone for her was total foolishness. You see, this happened in our presbytery. And to even become an inquirer, you've got to go before the session of your local church, which means her theology was actually affirmed in one of our churches, and it was affirmed because it was taught in one of our churches. That is scandalous. Christ crucified for the forgiveness of all sinners. Are you, you telling me that it's just Christ alone? And this is offensive to those who Paul says are perishing. The Greeks, they looked for, they looked for wisdom. For the Greeks, it was like, wisdom will define me. Wisdom will provide everything I need. Wisdom is the currency that I will work for to give me an identity and a future. And it sounded something like this. While the Jews looked at their religiosity to save them, the Greeks looked at their wisdom, what they knew. As long as I'm wise, as long as I'm trying really hard, I'm good the way I am. Here's our question. Are we any different? All I need is a good bank account. All I need is to be a good person. As long as I'm a successful person, as long as I'm a nice person, 
I'm good, right? That's our currency. I just do more good than evil, and God will receive a person just like me. My goodness is my currency, and God has to honor that transaction, right? Friends, if we don't keep the cross front and central, if we don't proclaim Christ crucified as front and central, what happens is we let the wisdom of this world influence our church, and that's what's happening in this context. If Christ crucified is not our starting point, we can't get around that. We let the wisdom and the currency of this world impact the church. Here's an example. I'm quoting Joel Osteen. You may have seen him on TV or read his book or admired his teeth. I'll give him that. He wrote, if you do your part, God will do his. He will promote you. He will give you the increase. This is from a pastor of a church that averages around 45,000 attendees per week. Wrap your mind around that. You know why they worship 45,000 attendees per week on average? Because we eat up this worldly wisdom. We love this identity that if we're good, God will owe us something. If we're just good, God will move his hand toward us. We love it. We crave this. And when we hear it from the pulpit, we take it as truth. But listen, it is not. The message of the cross is Christ crucified. That's the starting point. It's got nothing to do with us. It starts with God. Christ crucified. That's the starting point. That's the bottom line. Listen, it's the non-negotiable. It's the one thing that unites us. The one thing we cannot compromise on. It's the one thing we can't mess up. It is the gospel that Christ died on the cross so that we may be forgiven and stand before the Father, as Paul writes, righteous, holy, and redeemed. as these Corinthians were figuring out how to be Christians who are Corinthians instead of Corinthians who are Christians. There's a huge difference there. They had a blind spot. And they unknowingly let the wisdom of their age creep into the church, and because of that, there was division. And we struggle with that as well. Let me give you a couple examples. In the Atlantic recently, I saw this last week, Tim Alberta wrote an article called How Politics Poisoned the Evangelical Church. And I'm going to read just a little portion of what he wrote. He wrote, Christianity has traditionally been seen as a stabilizing, even moderating influence on American life. In 1975, more than two-thirds of Americans expressed, quote, a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the church. According to Gallup, and as of 1985, quote, organized religion was the most revered institution in American life. Wow. Today, Gallup reports, just 37% of Americans have confidence in the church. This downward spiral, writes, Al writes Alberta, this downward spiral owes principally to two phenomena, the constant stench of scandal with megachurches and prominent leaders imploding on what seems like a weekly basis, and the growing perception that Christians are embracing extremist views. 
One rarely needs to read to the bottom of a poll to learn that the religious groups most opposed to vaccines, most convinced that the 2020 presidential election was stolen, most inclined to describe, subscribe to QAnon conspiracy theories as white evangelicals. End quote. I don't think that's what Jesus wanted his church to be known for. When we try to infuse worldly currency into God's economy, it doesn't work. So in case you're inclined to lean to the left, maybe, you don't have to look further than our own denomination to see what happens when we trade the wisdom of the cross for the wisdom of this world. I'm going to use our Presbyterian denomination as an example. Listen to this. A total of 51,584 members died or left the PCUSA, that's our affiliation, in 2021. A total of 158,908 members, or 12%, have left the group since 2018. Membership in the denomination has dropped nearly 70% from a 1965 peak of 4.25 million. There used to be 4.25 million Presbyterians, right? Since the denomination was formed in 1983, our PCUSA affiliation, she has experienced a membership decline of nearly 62%, shrinking from 3,121,238 members in 1983 to just over 1.2 million members in 2021. Listen to this. 2019, over 50,000 people left the PCUSA. 2020, over 56,000 people left the PCUSA. 2021, over 51,000 people left the PCUSA. What the heck is going on? There's been changes, right? In the 1950s, Presbyterians began to adopt an executive model of operation. They, they looked at the world and said, what if we operated like that? Hey, trouble. Their structure began to be modeled after corporate America. In the 1960s, the Presbyterian Church began to push toward inclusivity and the lines between biblical authority and cultural acceptances began to blur. In the 2010s, the denomination began to compromise on the authority of Scripture to accommodate cultural norms. The wisdom of this world began being influential in our church. It traded kingdom currency for the currency of political correctness, and she's been in rapid decline ever since. So if you're on the left or you're on the right or you're somewhere in the middle, listen, that's not the point. I don't care. But you can't point a finger to one side, one ideology, and say that you're the problem. Listen, if we're infusing worldly currency into God's economy, we're harming the church. And this is what Paul is dealing with. I don't think Jesus wanted the church to be known for these things. It's the power of the cross. It is Christ crucified. That changes everything. That ought to be the main thing. And what if the church, what if we were more concerned with the message of the cross being proclaimed that Jesus came to save sinners instead of where we stand on vaccines, instead of how we proclaim our political correctness or our personal preferences in worship? What if we were all about Christ crucified because that's where the real power is? People are perishing, writes Paul, and, and your main thing isn't the power of the cross to save sinners? The Corinthian infighting reveals that they were importing the ideals and values of the world around them, and it absolutely harmed the church. Paul is 
trying to replace a worldly economy fueled by status and power, wisdom and eloquence. And for us, it's status and power, political affiliation. He's, he's trying to fix that, right? He's trying, to, he's trying to remove that and infuse God's economy, which is backed by the weakness of the cross, and crucifixion is central to this. We preach Christ crucified. That's the main thing. You see no crucified Christ, no resurrection, no hope. Christ crucified changes everything. When Jesus is your Lord and you submit to God's word, it's not foolishness anymore. And once you, once you make the decision to receive Jesus as Lord and stand under the authority of God, you can't help but see things in a new light. You can't help but begin to exchange the world's economy for God's economy. And when you do that, everything is upended. It's foolishness. It's a stumbling block to those who don't get it, but somehow it makes sense. It's a perspective change. It's a change of heart. Where you go from seeing things the way everyone else does to seeing life through the lens of the cross, and nothing will ever be the same again. A transformation takes place where we're no longer conformed to the world. We are transformed. The way we think is transformed. What we hope for changes. How you see yourself changes. How you see others. How you understand forgiveness and how you grant it to others. Grace is a marker of your life. The status change that God has granted you from sinner to saint begins to have real-time implications in your life. You are holy now. There's a resurrection future that no height nor depth nor anything in all creation can take from you. Why? Because of the cross. Church, that's the main thing. We can't lose sight of that. So yesterday, this is funny, yesterday, we've been practicing... Uh, baseball now. Luke's on a baseball team. He's 10, and we've been practicing baseball. The weather's been absolutely terrible, so we haven't played a game until yesterday, but we've been practicing for like almost three months. <laughs> this is a good group of baseball players. It's fun, and yesterday they got to play their first game, and we started off with a doubleheader, so we got to the field at uh, 945, and his team is there, and they're ready to go, and there's hundreds of other kids here, right? It's the kind of thing where you just you hope you leave with who you brought. They're everywhere. And so there's four fields. Games are all going on uh, over these four fields. They're all in different leagues. They're all playing kind of the same ball. But as our team, right, we're the Penguins, and as our team was warming up right here, the bathrooms are right here. There's a spot to warm up, and then there's a baseball diamond right here. And our kids are all there, they're throwing, they're getting loose, they're getting ready, they're chatting, and all of a sudden, one of them turns and he's starting to watch the game. And then he starts, he starts going, go, go, go. And all the other kids in our team started looking over, and now all these 10-year-old boys, every single one of them, there's 13 10-year-old boys, I kid you not, are jumping up and down, saying, go, go, go. And so we look over there, and on this field is a group of girls playing baseball. 
And this one girl hits something up the middle and it's dribbling past second base. And the second base, she's, she's running for this ball. The center fielder is coming in trying to get this ball and it's error after error after error. And the base runner is slowly rounding first and our kids are going nuts. She's rounding second, the ball still going. She's rounding third, she's headed to home. And I kid you not, every one of our kids, every one of our 10-year-old boys, all 13 of them are going nuts. Girls, yuck. Not when you're 10. Error after error after error. She may have been the slowest base runner I've ever seen. And our boys were rooting her the heck on. Because they love baseball. And they saw a home run. And when she made it home, it was the coolest thing. Our kids erupted. I've never seen my son root for a girl his age like that. This is the kid who said, I don't want anything to do with girls. All I want to do is skateboard and watch YouTube. To him, girls are like, yuck. To all these boys, girls, yuck, and all these errors. But you see, they were, they were united around their love for baseball. And all these periphery things, that it's a bunch of girls, that it's all these errors, that it's people like them who are learning how to play this beautiful game, all of that periphery stuff didn't matter anymore. And the joy and the focus that they expressed because they knew what their main thing is, it pumped me up. And I'm like, why can't the church be like that? Why can't we be as excited about Christ crucified and show that kind of joy, show that kind of transformation. And all these differences are just put to the wayside. Why do we take these differences and infuse them into God's economy and now have a divided church? We got to keep the main thing the main thing. Christ crucified. Sinners have hope. But Paul's not done. I love this next part. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So listen. Listen up, B-team people. Listen. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, the only way the powerless and invisibles, the screw-ups and nobodies have a chance is through Christ crucified. Not the wisdom of our world, not our worldly economy. It's Christ crucified. So this is good news for people who don't measure up. This is good news for folks who are bankrupt according to our social economy and have meaning and hope now. You are somebody now, you see. Two-thirds of, Cor of Corinth, the entire Corinthian church almost, was nobodies. They were invisibles, indentured servants, slaves, people who were there, but they didn't matter. They were unseen in the grand scheme of things. 
the people that the world would consider foolish. God chose them. They weren't considered wise or eloquent. They may have had a moment at one time, but now they're just another has-been. And they weren't special according to the Corinthian economy. They were just there. Anybody? God chose. It's in the text. God didn't take the leftovers. God chose the nobodies to tell their culture about somebody who died on a cross to change everybody. And what do these nobodies receive? This is where the gospel gets good. What do these nobodies receive? According to Corinthian economy, nothing. What do nobodies receive today? According to American economy, nothing. But according to God's economy, listen, righteousness, holiness, redemption. That's the message of the cross. We can't miss it. We can't take from it. We can't add to it. We can proclaim it. So I'm going to end here with two takeaways. I've got two takeaways for you here, okay? Listen, if you didn't catch this throughout this whole sermon, I'm going to make it painfully obvious. Christ crucified is the main thing. Christ crucified is the main thing. We cannot forget it. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. We can't focus on lesser things at the expense of losing sight of the main thing. Christ crucified so sinners have hope. Periphery things become primary things when we lose sight of the cross. That's the problem. So it's not about politics. It's not about personal preferences. It is Christ crucified for the righteousness holiness and redemption of sinners that's the gospel takeaway number one here's takeaway number two and i love this listen listen if the cross is god's saving event if christ crucified for sinners is what we have hope for in the resurrection if god chose the cross to overcome and defeat evil if the message of christ crucified is proclaimed to save sinners then all human standards of evaluation are null and void. In God's economy, God does the naming. God does the redeeming. God does the work. God imparts who he is onto us through Jesus Christ. And in our economy, we earn those things. We lose those things. But if we preach Christ crucified, we're no longer held to the standard of this world anymore. That ought to be freeing for us. If the message of Christ crucified is proclaimed to save sinners, all human standards of evaluation are null and void. So are you wealthy? Fantastic. Do you know Jesus? Are you popular? Are you accomplished? Do you have everything that you want in this world? Nice work. Do you know Jesus? Do you know that Jesus died to free you from an attachment to those things and give you a hope? Are you politically active, right or left, or anything in between or whatever? Fine. Do you know Jesus? 
Do you know the power of the cross? Are you educated and employed? Are you uneducated and unemployed? Are you somebody? Are you a nobody? Have you made it? Do you not even know how to make it? Are you checking all the cultural markers of success and achievement? Do you not even know what those cultural markers of success and achievement are? Fine. Question, do you know Jesus? Do you know the power of the cross to save sinners? Do you know that he did it for you? So that you don't have to live by this economy anymore. That's what Christ crucified for. So, friends, if there's anybody in here who's tired of playing by this world economy, you're following, you're, you're following our headlines, you're seeing what's going on in the world, you feel like everything is falling apart, and if you have no hope or reality outside of that, then absolutely your world is falling apart and it is hopeless. But if Jesus is your Lord, you see things in a broader spectrum. You know that this isn't it, that Christ is still working, that there are promises left to be fulfilled, that Christ is coming again. And because of that, even now we can say that the best is yet to come. And the way you have that perspective shift is by saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I trust you, and I invite you into my life. I want everything to change. And if you've prayed something like that today, welcome home. Let us know. You're part of the church now, and you will see everything start to shift. For the rest of us, let's let today be a day of recalibration where we don't forget the main thing, Christ crucified, hope for sinners. Would you join me in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for what you have done, and Lord, I will be the first to admit I often let worldly wisdom influence the way I see what you've done. And so God, help me, correct me. I pray, Lord, that this is a church that has our eye on the main thing, God. I pray that because of that, we have, an in, we have a huge kingdom impact here in Lakewood and beyond. God, you are good. Forgive us when we forget the main thing. Thank you, Lord that in you we are granted righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Lord, to you be all the glory, honor, and praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Thank you again for listening to the Lakewood Grace Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and then head on over to lakewoodgrace.com slash connect where you'll find a link to contact us or you can fill out a communication card. Have a wonderful week. God bless.